Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Karen Teo, Associate Professor of History and Director of the Asian Studies Program at Stonehill College. Um, We're here to discuss her new book, Schooling Diaspora, Women, Education, and the Overseas Chinese in British Malaya and Singapore, 1850s to 1960s, which was published by Oxford University Press uh, just this year in 2018. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, Tyler. Thank you very much. Um, Karen, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, uh, I teach at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts. I am an associate professor of Asian and world history, and I also direct the Asian Studies program. Um, And I received my doctorate at Harvard University, my bachelor's at Yale. Before that, both degrees were in history. So I've been working on Chinese history and generally Chinese diaspora studies for quite a while now. Um, And... uh, Let's see, what else can I tell you? I currently live in the Boston area. And um, let's see. I think that's that's generally it for an introduction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's wonderful. <laughs> so how did you come to study education in colonial Malaya in Singapore? Well, as with many graduate program degrees, as with many dissertations, um, this had a little bit of a roundabout route. Uh, to be honest, my original interest heading into graduate school was about the overseas Chinese, but about a somewhat different aspect. I've been interested in inter-ethnic violence and racial identities for a long time. So this was something that came with me as I entered my PhD program. Um, I wanted to read and research and write more about it to understand its history, how it transpires. Uh, and I suppose, you know, the undercurrent of that would be, you know, what do societies need to know about this history to uh, try to prevent it from happening. But uh, as I got further and further into this field, one thing I noticed was that uh, it was there was a gender imbalance, as in many fields, many historiographies, uh, but overseas Chinese studies tended to be dominated by works that focused on the public sphere. So economic history, political history, um, to the extent that it talked about things like ethnic identity and race relations. Again, it was very much in the sphere of political and social relations. And uh, to a large degree, this was a very male-dominated kind of landscape. So, um, you know, one of my mentors, uh, an anthropologist, actually, would every once in a while look at what I was working on or what I was reading, and she would ask me, well, where are the women? <laughs> and I would say, I know they're here. You know, it's I know that migrant communities don't always have a good gender balance, but um, I know they're there. And she said, well, see if you can find them. Where's the historical mm-hmm. record? So... I'm poking around in the literature, and I found that the literature on women, on overseas Chinese women, was somewhat one-sided in that you would find accounts of what you might call exceptional women, 
unusual women, uh, women who tended to be on the far ends of the social spectrum. So either they were elite women who, um, you know, were prominent, were wealthy, um, were just, you know, basically left a a record. People wrote about them or um, they wrote about themselves. And so you would have those stories. Or right on the other end of the scale, you would have the unfortunates, if you will, um, women who were indigent, you had bondmaids. Uh, there's a lot of literature on prostitutes and women being sold into sexual slavery. Uh, and so you'd have that kind of mass of undifferentiated uh, women, but again, you know, at the bottom of the social ladder. So this was um, kind of an unusual scenario because, as you can imagine, there's got to be a, a whole lot of people in between, um, but the historical record didn't seem to reflect them. And so that started me on my journey to try to find them. Yeah. And your book explores um, English-speaking and Chinese-speaking schools for girls. Yes. Um, so who was founding these initial schools in the first part of your time period that you look at and, and who is attending them? Sure. So, um, the two kinds of schools have somewhat different origin stories. The English language schools uh, were typically founded by missionaries. Um, and the missionaries in the earliest period came from Europe, but eventually included, of course, British Protestant missionaries, uh, American missionaries, and so forth. So all of these different private groups were setting up schools. Um, and the British colonial government, too, began to participate, although to a lesser degree in the beginning. They were quite happy to let the missionary bodies put up the funds and the um, manpower, if you will, to to, uh, set up these schools. And then the Chinese language schools, on the other hand, which began to spring up maybe some 50 years or so after the first missionary schools had appeared, um, they were typically founded by members of the Chinese community. They were not religious or missionary in nature, but they were very much communal. And so there was a strong focus on Uh, using the Chinese language, Mandarin sometimes, but other dialects, and trying to perpetuate education about Chinese history and culture. Wow. So, So then what were the girls learning in these two types of schools? How much did the curriculum differ? Sure. Um, you know, maybe it's it's worth kind of, you know, backtracking for a moment too, because when you were asking, um, you know, how I came to this subject and I was explaining how I was looking for the women in, in these communities, um, well, of course, there they were within the walls of these schools. <laughs> um, you know, having grown up in this um, community myself, and I suppose it's something I should add as part of my biography, is that I grew up in Southeast Asia um, and I went to school in Malaysia and Singapore before I came to the States for college. So in Malaysia, I attended a Chinese school and in Singapore, I attended an English language school. So, you know, there's a little bit of autobiography, I guess, underpinning that, but without veering too far into the anecdotal, I just had the sense that, you know, if I'm looking for women, then girls' schools, which have been around for, um, you know, more than, than 150 years, that seems like a logical place to start looking for women who weren't on those two exceptional ends, as I mentioned. So um, therefore, I began looking into these institutions. And it's a whole world, not only in terms of their histories, how they originated, but as you said, also in terms of their curriculum and their approaches. Yeah. Could you could you elaborate a bit on the curriculum point? I'm just so curious to learn how exactly maybe you even researched these things and what kind of materials you used to discover the curriculum 100 years ago, for example? 
Sure. Uh, well, you know, this is the thing about institutions like schools is that they're usually pretty good about keeping track of their own histories. So in that sense, uh, you know, there was a real advantage there. One of the challenges that people point to in researching women's history in general, um, let alone, you know, immigrant Chinese, um, migrant women or overseas Chinese women is that there's not enough of a paper trail. But of course, institutions keep their own records. So everything ranging from the annals, if you will, of the missionaries who founded the first Chinese, um, sorry, the first girls school in uh, British Malaya to school magazines to, um, you know, commemorative issues of certain publications that collected photographs of what the girls were doing, their activities, um, essays that they wrote, um, documents that listed the origins of teachers and staff members, and textbooks, to the extent that those were still available. Those can also give you a sense of what the curriculum um, and just campus life is like. So on both fronts, for both the English and the Chinese schools, these materials really helped me to to build a picture of what these schools were like. Um, and then one additional component is that I set about to find and interview women who had um, been students in these schools or had taught in these schools, in some cases, both of those categories. So uh, that really helped also to give me a sense of what day-to-day -day life and lived experience in these schools was like. Yeah, no, um, I wanted to ask just on the topic of photographs, if you could say a little bit about the image on the front of the book, um, which school does it depict? How did you choose that photo? Sure. Um, so this picture is from the archives of the Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus. This is one of the several schools that I profile in the book. And I really tried to do a deep dive into their history because it so happens that, again, as with you know many institutions, schools, missionary groups, they kept really good records. And I actually had access to their original annals, which are these basically huge volumes in which um, they would collect newspaper clippings, handwritten journals, um, you know, just all kinds of documentation relating to the founders uh, and the operations of the school. They're like scrapbooks, basically, big bound scrapbooks. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting story there in that they're not held in a library or in uh, a specific archive. They were under the care of one retired nun living in um, a retired sister's home on the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur, uh, which is the capital city of Malaysia. And, you know, as I was hunting for these materials, people said, you know, there are these fantastic annals, you know, four or five volumes that contain the history of the school, but you'll have to go and ask the sister for permission to see them. And so I had to drive out to the home and I met with her a few times, each time the answer was no, uh, but she would sit and chat with me and she'd tell me the history orally um, until, you know, finally one time for no reason that I can really discern, she suddenly said, well, okay, why don't you come with me? And then she leads me to this dusty, non-air-conditioned room and there they are. Oh my gosh, I love stories <laughs> like that. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But most, most um, you know, historians and researchers hope for that. Um, this photograph, though, didn't come from the annals per se. It came from a school magazine. And again, that's another thing that they collected a lot of their old school magazines. This one is undated. And uh, best guess is that it's probably from the 1910s, 1930s and the Col uh, Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus or CHIJ. And it's, you know, you're kind of quote-unquote typical class photograph. Um, 
I particularly love this picture for a number of reasons. First of all, there's just the character of it. And I suppose back in the day, taking these pictures, the exposures had to be pretty long. And so by the time the picture is taken, I think the smile has fallen off most of the faces. <laughs> so you see some really, um, some really funny expressions, you know, it's, um, you know, some of these kids are like, why am I still standing or sitting here in the hot sun? So it's, it's just very relatable, I feel like. Uh, you also see standing in the back row on the far right-hand side, there is a sister, there's a nun wearing the heavy black habit of, of French Catholic nuns at the time. And then on the opposite end, you see a, a young teacher who is not wearing any religious garb. So presumably she's been hired from uh, the local community and, you know, that also speaks to this question of how the missionaries were going to staff and keep these schools going. They obviously couldn't do everything themselves. And so in educating girls, they were also seeking to build up a population of um, young women whom they could then hire and, you know, staff the schools with basically teachers. They're creating their own supply of local teachers. Um, and so that was very important for keeping the education movement going. And then for the girls themselves, you see these four rows of, of little girls, you know, I'm not sure about the ages, I'm guessing, you know, maybe something like seven or eight to nine, 10 years old. Um, and it's interesting to look at the ethnic composition. Uh, obviously, it's hard to say for sure, because we don't have individuals' names. And so it's kind of a best guess. But just looking at this group, you can kind of see that the majority of them are most likely ethnic Chinese or have, um, you know, uh, at least in part, a Chinese background. And that's part of the story I'm telling in this book, which is that um, in both English language and Chinese language schools, in a multi-ethnic, multicultural British colony where the Chinese were immigrants and not always a very stable group of immigrants, as in they weren't always welcome, the majority of students in both of these schools were Chinese. So ethnic Chinese girls were disproportionately represented in girls' schools. Yeah. Um, and then one chapter of your book is titled Rare Flowers, Modern Girls, Good Citizens. And I found this actually really encapsulated some of the core dilemmas that, you're, that you talk about in the book. Um, could you explain the significance of these terms in relation to the different students and their ethnicities? In terms of the the chapter title, um, these phrases kind of jumped out at me. You know, they're they're not mine. They're actually quotes from uh, various writings of the time, and each one is it's not just a descriptive phrase. It's a very loaded category that represents you know an entire history of um, you know not just who these girls or women are, but expectations about them and societal expectations and uh, positive and negative associations. So this particular chapter looks at the ethnic Chinese girls' schools, which largely began to crop up around the 1900s, uh, and they kind of grew very rapidly for the next. Um, well, several decades, really, but you really see this concentrated growth uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And it was also around this time that ethnic Chinese women in the ancestral homeland, if you will, in mainland China, were also grappling with this idea of what the place of a girl or a woman should be in a new nation. So you have this transition, um, you know, these ideas about 
uh, women being domestic, education and literacy is not strictly necessary, you know, fairly uh, conventional or traditional notions of uh, women's status and women's place to new ideas in uh, again, the 1900s, 1910s, as China is becoming uh, a republic um, and undergoing all kinds of upheaval, you know, what should girls and women, what, what should they do? Um, you know, let's say we want them to have an education. Well, how much and what for? Are they going to contribute to the national project? Um, are they going to contribute to national modernity? If so, well, the women themselves should be modern, but then in what ways, right? In terms of their knowledge or their appearance, how they dress, how they run the household in their relationships to their families, to their husbands, so on and so forth. So these three phrases that you mentioned uh, kind of try to capture both the terms that people at the time would use, you know, for example, describing graduating schoolgirls as rare flowers. So still emphasizing their delicacy, their femininity, and then also the fact that they're unusual, you know, they're precious, they're, um, you know, they're not only uh, sort of the flower of our womanhood, but they're also educated, you know, they're really special. Um, but then you move on to these more, you um, politically charged terms, right? Modern girls, which by the way, wasn't always a compliment, which could also imply these women who are just uh, out for a good time. They went to school so that they could get out into society and find rich husbands. They like to wear high heels and makeup. Um, So modern girls is not exactly a compliment much of the time. And then finally, good citizens, you know, what what should an educated woman do to be a good citizen? Should she go out and work or should she actually help to mother good male citizens in the form of her sons. Um, so all of these terms kind of enter the discourse, not only in China, but then they also filter into overseas Chinese girls' schools. And I think very much shape the options that are available to women in migrant Chinese communities. Did many of these girls, after they finished school, go back to China? No. So here's the interesting thing. Um, We're looking at a population that has many different layers, many different generations of immigrants. Um, If you're talking about British Malaya and Singapore, which um, kind of fell under British control from about the late 18th century onwards, Chinese migration had started well before that, from at least the 16th century. So, you know, you have a population of Chinese uh, who have been there for a long time, typically they would come about because Chinese merchants who are male would settle down, intermarry with Malay women. And so you had this kind of hybrid Chinese community uh, that existed, that pre-existed um, the, before the British colonials arrived. And then subsequently, you have different waves of migration, kind of some intensifying around the mid 19th century onward and upward. Um, But point being, there were a lot of families, there were a lot of Chinese girls who were born and bred in Southeast Asia. They had never been to China, or if they had, it was, you know, at best for a visit. China was not home to them so much as it was an idea of home. So this is where the notion of Chinese identity becomes very interesting. Um, Why did they identify as Chinese? And if so, was it a cultural identification? Was there any aspect of a political identification? Were they Chinese nationals, even if they were born in a British colony? Um, You know, there's what the law says, and then there's also what 
norms or schools will tell you. Um, and that's where it starts getting really complex because different people would feel differently. Um, and to finally answer your question, um, some of these girls and women did, quote, go back to China. And I use those scare quotes because they're going back to a place they've never been to. Um, but that's addressed in my last chapter where I talk about uh, girls and women from Chinese girls' schools who re-migrated, as I like to say, to China during the 1940s and 50s because they wanted to join the um, national rebuilding project, basically, you know, join the Cultural Revolution or, you know, kind of go back to a newly independent and, and communist China, um, kind of a patriotic uh, thing to do. And in that act, you also see an effort to claim some kind of Chinese identity. So, and then another important component of your book are these oral histories that you conducted with many overseas Chinese women who attended some of these schools, correct? So how did this process play out for you? How did you find these women? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> it wasn't easy. Um, initially, I have to say, I I knew that this was going to be an important part of the project starting out. I think, you know, even before I set out on my research trips, I knew that I would have to talk to people who came out of these schools because the historical record, the archives, the materials while they were there would only tell me so much. So um, I think even before I began the interviews, I was trying to think about how methodologically I would fit this in, how I would justify it, because this wasn't going to be um, a statistically representative or random sample. So, you know, if you apply the methods of social science to it, this probably wouldn't hold up. But from a historian's perspective, and I think I may have mentioned, uh, you know, one of my advisors was an anthropologist, thinking about it from an ethnographic perspective, this could, you know, not only address lived experience for girls and women in these schools, but maybe also help address questions of memory and how their remembrances of this time would tie into their identities as educated or transnational Chinese women. So in terms of finding them, I just basically started with what I knew, which was personal networks. I mentioned that I went to school in both Malaysia and Singapore. Um, I knew the names of schools. Uh, I knew of institutions that had existed since colonial times and that continue to operate today. So uh, I would you know, make a lot of phone calls. <laughs> I would ask for introductions. I would reach out to um, heads of alumni organizations. Um, uh, I would, you know, ask friends to introduce me to their friends, would introduce me to their mothers, and their mothers would set up a tea with a bunch of their friends. So there was kind of a snowball effect where first I'd start out with maybe, you know, five to eight um, older women whom I knew who had who had come out of these schools, and then they would in turn introduce me to their friends, colleagues, uh, alumni, classmates, and so forth. And I did find that in this particular community, that personal introduction was really important because otherwise people wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> they wouldn't trust me um, or they wouldn't feel safe talking about their personal experiences, partly because education, and in particular, Chinese education, has become an extremely politicized and sensitive issue in Southeast Asia. So I think they really needed to know 
who I was and what I was going to do with this, this information uh, before they would share it with me. So when these uh, when these women were young women and they left the school, what types of occupations were they engaging in? Where where do you find them now? Well, now, uh, at least in terms of the cohort I was interviewing, many of them uh, would range between their 60s to early 80s. And then, you know, with a, a few on uh, either end of that, that curve, when they came out of school, many of them wanted to work. Uh, that was definitely something that they kind of imbibed in school that this was something that um, they personally wanted to do. And you see an interesting generational divide because for that, again, that generation of women who, let's say, were probably born in you know, 1930s, 1940s, um, they were quite determined to try to use their education to improve their uh, social or socioeconomic status in that they felt, you know, if I can use this degree to get a job being a teacher or a telephone operator or, you know, what they call a sales girl, like a salesperson or just some kind of job, even if it wasn't very high ranking, it would offer them more independence and more economic stability than, um, than they would presumably have if they, quote unquote, just married, just got married. But they also said that their teachers, particularly in the English English language girls schools, the religious schools, there was still a very strong emphasis on being prepared to be married and to have children. So, you know, earlier you asked me about differences in the curriculum. And one very striking difference I found was that the English schools offered what they called domestic science from the start, right? Home education, home economics. So cooking, sewing, um, you know, uh, childcare, so on and so forth. Whereas the Chinese schools didn't offer them. They did not offer that subject until I want to say the 1940s or 50s, they began to introduce it. And, you know, even then it wasn't a very heavily emphasized part of their curriculum. So why was that, do you think? Yeah, that <laughs> that was pretty intriguing. And, um, you know, that does map to that generational difference, if you will, uh, as well as what these schools originally set out to do. The English language schools, especially the mission schools, I think, did carry with them um, you know, a few different goals from the start. So one obviously is the religious mission to evangelize and to rescue and to help. You know, they took in not only very wealthy students, but also indigent students and, and orphans who couldn't pay for themselves. So that was that element. But then there was also something of the Western civilizing movement um, that wasn't unique to the missionaries. The British government also brought that in with them. Um, but this idea of helping to improve and modernize uh, these local girls and women, uh, not only the Chinese, but there were also ethnic Indian, ethnic Malays to a much lesser extent and um, you know other Southeast Asian girls and women. So the idea was that they would help to modernize these girls and, quote, civilize them, but not necessarily to the point where they would completely depart from their traditional roles as wives and mothers. So even if they were to become, let's say, teachers or, you know, basically occupy what I call low-level white-collar work um, at the time, they still expected uh, these girls to eventually become good wives and mothers. And so all these homemaking skills were very important. Um, Whereas for the Chinese schools coming up as they did at the turn of the century, they were very much informed by rising Chinese nationalism. And so there was probably a stronger political current running through them. 
And you had notions of modernity that, you know, while they didn't completely detach, again, from ideas of woman as wife and mother, I think probably thought about ideas of citizenship um, and maybe therefore notions of individual personhood a little more strongly than the missionary schools did. And so I think home economics wasn't a priority. It was more, you know, what can you learn here that you're not already learning at home? Also, presumably, if you're at home, I'm going to assume you're like, you know, also cooking and cleaning and doing stuff. Um, but school was where they would learn languages, you know, science, geography, mathematics. Uh, when they got up to the higher levels, secondary school or high school, training to become teachers, they were studying psychology of education. They were studying sociology. Um, it was a pretty, you know, progressive curriculum, actually, that you would find in the Chinese schools. Um, of the women whose oral, oral accounts you include in the final section, did any really stand out to you or surprise you in any way? Do you mean the um, the last chapter about the women? Yeah, yeah. Who, you know, in terms of writing the book, that was the first chapter I started writing. And probably the last one I left off polishing, because from the start, this set of interviews both intrigued and challenged me very much. Um, so these were women who remigrated to China from British Malaya and Singapore, uh, 1940s, 1950s, and so forth. And when I met them in the 2000s, first of all, it was um, my access to interviewees was mediated through official channels. And I guess that's a formal way of saying that they weren't alone with me. They weren't always able, I think, to speak completely freely. Mm. Um, uh, but they would find ways, I think, to gesture towards the difficulties that they experienced. Um, it, was, it was quite poignant to see that even amongst women who didn't suffer the worst kinds of persecution or mistreatment, that many re-migrant Chinese in the 1950s and 60s uh, in mainland China experienced. I mean, those, those migrants were at first welcomed with open arms, and then eventually uh, people turned against them during the Cultural Revolution because you know the state decided that they weren't trustworthy, they weren't Chinese enough, uh, they were bourgeois, they came from these merchant families. So uh, there were some really tragic experiences. The women I spoke with, for one thing, I think, the people who managed these interviews kind of hand-selected some individuals who were more fortunate. So, you know, their, their lives weren't um, as obviously tragic. But the more time I spent talking with them, the more they would kind of gently allude to the fact that, oh, after I left in the 40s or 50s, you know, I never saw my family in uh, Southeast Asia again. And, you know, I had the opportunity to travel again. No, I didn't want to. Um, in one case, there was a woman who during a group interview said very little, but then as I was leaving, she slipped me uh, an essay that she had written that was published, interestingly, in an overseas Chinese newspaper. And it was um, kind of like a letter, an open letter to her mother, who she had left in, I think, Singapore when she went back to China. And uh, by the time she was able to travel out of China to visit her mother again, the mother had dementia and had completely forgotten that she had a daughter, just didn't recognize her at all. Um, so that was quite heartbreaking. Um, 
so yeah, there there were there were a lot of subtleties, I think, in in terms of the heartbreak that some of these women experienced and tried to make sense of in their narratives. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to wrap up our conversation then by asking the traditional final question at New Books Network. What are you working on now? So I actually have two book projects going on right now. One is uh, a rather ambitious one. It's called uh, basically Women in China, a History. Uh, And it's a reference work that looks at the history of women in China from earliest times to the present. (laughs) Um, It's a two-volume encyclopedic work. So that's one thing that I'm working on. The other is a little more specific. I am figuring out how to uh, approach a social history of gambling amongst the overseas Chinese in British colonies. So it's basically looking at uh, this classic stereotype of the Chinese as being inveterate gamblers and just trying to attack it from a historical point of view. You know, So let's say it's true there are all these gambling houses, but how can we understand them from the perspective of you know, who operated them, from the perspective of British law, from the perspective of um, kind of social practice and uh, obviously the economics of it. So trying to take something that you know, starts out as a pretty crude stereotype, if you will, but trying to break it down and understand it as a cultural and historical phenomenon. Karen, those both sound like great projects. (laughs) Um, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. Well, thank you, Tyler. Thanks very much for your time. 